Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Would you stand with me, please, for the reading of the Word of God? Reading out of Genesis chapter 37. Surprise, Genesis. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. It was Abraham, had a son named Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God and his name is changed to Israel. He eventually has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is Jacob, but Israel now loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers, they hated him all the more. Father, I pray your anointing upon the word. I pray that you would give us understanding of this and an application to our lives this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We have been in a series entitled Origin Story for quite some time. Um, We will be concluding the series in two more weeks. So we have two more conversations to be held after this one, and then we will be concluding it. Um, It's dealt with the story of Genesis, the entire book of Genesis. And um, we've traveled and watched, as I said, Abraham called out by God from a foreign land to pursue him, and somehow through Abraham, all the world is going to be blessed. We know now that that's because ultimately Jesus Christ comes through that line. Abraham has a son, as I said, named Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob, there's a lot of family dysfunction going on in Genesis. So if you have a a problematic family, you've got to love this book, okay? Um, Jacob, or rather Isaac, uh, prefers Esau, the older brother, over Jacob. Jacob longs to hear from his father a blessing, longs to have some reception from him. We talked a little bit about that last week. He doesn't really get it ever from, from his dad. Uh, he finds a girl named Rachel and thinks she's going to fulfill all his dreams, and in some ways that's true. Um, so he probably pours all his affection into her, and then she dies. And uh, now he has Joseph, one of the sons from Rachel, and with Rachel out of the way, he pours everything and then begins to perpetuate the family dysfunction. He doesn't just pour his affection into Joseph. He makes him the favorite, forgetting how he felt when his brother was made the favorite, he repeats the same scenario with Joseph. As we get into the scripture, and we're going to take a big chunk of scripture today, and I'm going to try and feed it to you as easily as I can um, to move us down to where we're going here in this time. Um, so you know most of the story, some of you at least, uh, or some distortion of it at least through Disney. Um, he's given a, a special coat, coat of many colors in one place it said. Here it's just referred to as an ornate coat. 
Now, it's interesting, the understanding of what this coat would have been is um, a little bit like a, a tunic that would have been long-sleeved and would have come down probably below the knees or so. In other words, it's not a type of clothing that you wear to work out in the fields. It's not the type of thing that you do hard labor with. It is a supervisor's coat. And so early on, Joseph, maybe because he was recognized for certain skills, but it implies here that it was mostly favoritism that he's given this special kind of coat. Now, as we go along, even in this passage here, it says how he gave a bad report about his brothers. So he's tattling back to his dad about his brothers. Everybody loves a tattletale. I mean, that's just how it is, right? Well, the wording here is actually deeper. It doesn't just imply that he made a, a bad report. It implies that he lied. In other words, he's enjoying his favoritism and he's going out of his way to create trouble for others to cement that position in his dad's eyes. We, wait, wait, this is Joseph. Joseph is a type of Christ. Joseph is this wonderful person. He is, but not here, not now, not as a 17-year-old brat. He's not. Yeah, you don't believe that. Well, let's, let's look a little deeper on here. We stopped it at the point of a dream. You know, Joseph has a dream, and that's great. Um, but what kind of a dream did he have? Well, he tells his brothers, um, listen, there's a dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright while all your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. Now, his brothers weren't stupid. They said, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? You're the younger. And the scripture says they hated him all more because of that dream and what he had said. Okay. When I was young, I had to have been like maybe seven or eight when this happened, no more than nine. Um, I had this dream that stuck in my head. Couldn't get rid of it. So here's, here's the whole dream that I can recall. I was talking with Jesus. We're sitting on this big white rock and everything around us is all white and it's all shiny and here's Jesus and me talking. And I asked him all sorts of things and he told me all sorts of things and, and I don't remember what any of those things are but, but I think that's what gave me such wisdom I have today was from the feet of Jesus. So, so anyways, I don't remember any of the stuff. I only remember one thing from this dream and I've shared this with one or two friends since then is I just remember the last portion where um, uh, before I woke up, I, I, I turned to Jesus and I say, Jesus, I like strange and unusual things. Why is that, Jesus? All I remember the last moment of the dream was Jesus saying, Randy, that's because you are strange and unusual. <laughs> now, that is the dream. Um, whether it's prophetic, many of my friends have said, yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> they're good friends. Um, I've shared that dream. It doesn't particularly do anything more than elicit laughter like it has here before. It doesn't particularly lift me up in any fashion. It's, it's what I had. Now, whether it's from God or not, I don't know. Dreams oftentimes we find in Scripture are God's way of communicating. Um, we know that, that that happens still yet today. Uh, so God uses dreams to speak to us, but a lot of times dreams are just the working out of things we had during the day, or as Charles Dickens says through Scrooge, a, a, a spot of mustard, a bit of undigested gravy, you know, could be causing this dream or this apparition to happen in place. So we need to be careful with dreams, but they can have profound meaning, and particularly in this time period they did. And this dream wasn't benign. It wasn't neutral. It wasn't even self-deprecatory like mine was, um, which means my dream was so much better than his was. Now, his dream levels him up away, 
And they hated him, it says. They didn't say they were ticked off. It says they hated him. Then he has another dream, it says. And we're in chapter 37. Uh, I had another dream. Hey, guys, another dream. This time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him. He said, what is this dream you had? I pick up what you're saying. This, the, the, the sun and the moon, that's your mom and I. So you're saying your mother and I and your brothers, these 11 stars, are all going to come down and bow to you? His brothers were jealous to him, and, and there was more hatred involved. Okay, you tell a dream one time like that, which you shouldn't share, and you get a reaction. And then you say it a second time, okay, now you're not just a liar, you're not just an arrogant, uh, little um, self-serving rich kid. You're now somewhat of a sociopath. You're not caring about their emotions. You're not tuned in to the fact of how this is playing out, or you are, and you just don't care. That's Joseph at 17. Story continues on. One point in time, his brothers had gone to a place called Shechem, not too far away, and were grazing the sheep and everything else. And um, Jacob or Israel says to Joseph, says, uh, I want you to go check on the guys, see how they're doing. And so he goes over to Shechem, but the guys aren't at Shechem. Interestingly enough, randomly, this guy's passing by, and he says, do you know where some people that were at here, where they might have gone? And he says, oh yeah, I overheard them talking. They've gone to Dothan. Dothan is a more distant place. It's a lot more barren at this time. Later, it becomes an important city uh, in, the, in, the, in the scripture, and we find the prophet Elisha having a very interesting experience there. But at this time, it's a desolate place. So from this random guy, he gets the clue. He goes over to Dothan to talk with the boys. And the scripture says that as... They saw him coming. His brothers said, here comes that dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. Say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. This is how dysfunctional the family had gotten. We're going to kill this little pipsqueak. And we're going to say it was an animal. Reuben, the oldest of them, says um, he's trying to do a little rescue. He can't stand against the crowd, but he says, let's not take his life. Let's not shed any blood. Let's, let's throw him inside the pit and we'll let it happen naturally by death because in the back of his head, he's thinking, I'll come back later and I'll get him out and this will be cool, okay? So when Joseph shows up, imagine his horror breaking through his sociopathic mindset as they grab him, they strip him, and the language there is like, like skinning an animal. So they strip him of his clothing, and then they throw him into this empty cistern. So there's no water in it, but it's an empty, deep stone pit. And they throw him in, and the language there is like throwing in a dead body. So they strip him. They throw him in. He smashes down on the bottom of that cistern, and he can't get out. He's naked, banged up, bruised. Reuben, for some reason, goes away for a little bit of time. And so as the guys are sitting there um, waiting for their plan to unwind, they have lunch. Now, we know from a, a later portion of the story in chapter 42 that, um, that during this whole time, Joseph is crying, that he's screaming for help, that he's begging for release, that he's weeping and terrified in this pit. And they're sitting there having their lunch. 
Well, as time goes on and Reuben is taking whatever longer time he's taking to come, Judah, as we said the other day, Judah has the idea of saying, hey, wait a minute, there just randomly, again, happens to be a group of Ishmaelites, so of slave traders going by in the area, in this desolate area, they show up. And Judah says, why just have him killed? We can make some money off this deal. And so they sell him, their brother, they sell into slavery to the Ishmaelites. Reuben comes back and he's realizing now that his plan is, is totally busted. So they spread goat blood over it, take it back to, to Jacob. Jacob sees it and, and he's desolated. Oh, I forgot to mention too. They, they sell him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. 20 pieces of silver. Jacob slash Israel is devastated. Reuben's plan has been blown And it's at this time that it goes into chapter 38 that we talked about last week. So we're past that point. Let's pick up Joe's story again. And it's in chapter 39. Now he's been taken down to Egypt. Egypt was probably the foremost civilization of its time. Um, Interesting twist, possibly. We don't know this for sure. We know this. We just don't know if it was this time period. There was a time when Egypt, a significant section of it, was being ruled by foreign rulers. Um, some of who may have even had some, some lineage with, with the Hebrews and things of this nature, but, but they might have been ruling in this time, which if that was the case, and we don't know for sure, it would make sense as to what takes place next on this story and how it's possible for Joseph to gain what he does. But right now he's a slave. He's 17 years old. He's taken to a place, a guy named Potiphar. And uh, this guy has some role with Pharaoh uh, that seems to be fairly high up. But it says in verse 2 of chapter 39, the Lord was with Joseph. And we see this throughout. It's interesting. You don't hear the Lord speaking to Joseph at any time in this process. But there's multiple places where it says the Lord was with Joseph. But he's not speaking. We don't hear the Lord speak, just that he was with Joseph. Well, what use is that? I remember years ago, someone who suffered a terrible loss uh, and a family member had died. And a friend of theirs came into town, I think it was in Chicago, and just called up the friend and says, look at, I know you're in mass, massive grief right now. I know there's a lot going around. If you want me, I'm here. If not, I'm here. I'm just in town. I'm staying here. I just came to be near you. I just came to be there. When I've dealt with funerals, I can't tell you how many times people say stupid platitudes. And it's understandable. They're, they're nervous. They don't know what to say. You know, so they'll say, you know, God need another angel or something ridiculous like that and try to say something when really a lot of times all that it means is just being there. I still remember those who just came, whether I talked to me or not, for my father's funeral and just being there. There's something about being there that sometimes is much better, much better than any words we're going to say in the process. It's important to know that through all these situations, the Lord was with Joseph. As a result of that, Joseph proves himself. Again, he's, he's got skills. Mad skills, evidently, because Potiphar puts him in charge of the entire household. Everything, it says, he raises up and puts him in charge of. It says that Potiphar only cared about what he was eating. That's it. Only in the sense of, you know, I'm sitting down to eat. Is my food here? Okay, fine. Everything else, all the finances, all the managing of people, Joseph rises up and handles all of that. And there's something changing in this man. Well, he's a good-looking guy. And uh, Potiphar, uh, there may have been a few issues with Potiphar we won't go into now as to why this took place this way, but his wife uh, pays attention to Joseph. And she's constantly hitting on him, constantly trying to to have sexual advances, and he rebuffs all of those. 
But then there's one day it says, he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his coat, by his jacket and says, come to bed with me. But he, he, he runs away and leaves his jacket in her hands. Whether it's a, 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 a jacket that has a lot of different colors to it or just a basic slave jacket, this guy's got jacket issues, okay? He keeps having a problem with them. And this one's a big problem because she hangs on to the jacket. And even though he rebuffs it and runs away and says, how could I do this? I, 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 my, my, I'm serving my master. I'm going to do this. She holds on to the jacket. And then later she screams, has all the servants come in and says, this, this guy tried to rape me. See, here's the jacket. And Potiphar comes back later. And she's like, look, at the servants will back me up. I, I, I screamed because this Hebrew slave you brought in tried to rape me. See, here's his jacket. Okay, I think from now on, I would go short sleeves for the rest of my life, okay, if I were him. So um, Potiphar is enraged. Now, here's an interesting twist. Normally, in this type of situation, Joseph should have been executed. An attempted rape of the master's wife as a slave, you're done. But he's not. He's thrown in prison, which implies two things at least. One is possibly, possibly, but not likely, possibly um, Potiphar is sitting here saying, the guy's got such mad skills and he's done such good service for me, I'm not going to kill him, I'll throw him. But not likely. It's likely, I think, a little bit more. I think, I think Potiphar wasn't absolutely convinced that his wife was being straight with him. Now, he's got to take action. It's a public thing now. He's got to do some action. But it's like, mm, I don't know, Mildred. I'm not so sure about you. So he has him thrown in prison. It's not a good thing for him. It's better than death, but only marginally so. But the scripture goes on and says, in chapter 39, verse 21, the Lord was with him. Showed him kindness, granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Follow this. The prison warden puts him in charge of all the other prisoners and all the other administrative duties within the prison. He was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care. <laughs> I mean, this guy's incredibly skilled, evidently, or finding favor from the Lord on this. And so he's 17 when he's thrown uh, in slavery. Um, he's 28, 28 years old in his prime when he's thrown in prison now with what would seem to be no hope of reprieve. And yet the scripture says again in verse 23, the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care. And then it says, because the Lord was with Joseph, he continues to be with him. So now he's like the chief trustee. He, he's got weight. He's, got a, he's doing stuff. He's, here's one of the questions. When you end up with adversity, do you sit back and sulk? Or do you seize what moments there are? When we're injured, when we are depressed, when we're attacked, we tend to pull in and get sullen. And we lose other opportunities that Lord might have for us in the process. It's possible even that he may have permitted the situation to happen to us so that some developing in our character could occur. It was with Joseph because the lying little sociopath, rich kid, has changed. Now we've seen bits of that so far, but we see it mostly in this next portion. In chapter 40, the cupbearer and the baker, the butler who would hold the cup of the king, the wine. He took care of all the wine and the tasting and everything else, and, and, and he handled us. Well, for some reason, he and the baker uh, get thrown in prison. Pharaoh's not happy with him. Something went down wrong. I don't know if he gave him the wrong vintage and the baker screwed up and put too much salt. I don't know what the case was, but they end up in prison along with Joseph. And then this is an interesting point. They're in prison for some time. Each of the two men had a dream the same night. 
They have, they have different dreams, but both have on the same night. And each dream seemed to have a meaning of its own. When Joseph came down, verse 6, the next morning he saw that they were dejected. And so he asked the Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, the butler and the baker, why do you look so sad today? Think of that. He's gone from cistern to slavery to um, prison, and he could be depressed and pulled. Instead, he's, he's still prospering in this moment, and something's changed from the kid who did care less about his brother's, his intimate family member's feelings. He's walking around the courtyard and happens to notice that these two guys are looking down this day. He t- picks up on this nuance that he never would have before, never cared. But now he picks up on it. He says, why do you look so sad today? What's going on, guys? What's happening? We both had dreams, but there's no one to interpret them. Don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told his dream. He said, in, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches, and as soon as it budded, it blossomed. Its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. Hey, heads up. When everything goes well, though, remember me. Show me some kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this. And he explains his circumstances and how he ended up there. He says, just don't forget me. But the bottom line, in three days, you're out of here, dude, and you're back in position. Now, the baker's listening to all this. He's like... Well, well, hey, I had a dream too. Tell me, tell me my dream. Tell me my dream. Like, you know, it had threes in it involved too and everything. There was three, tell me my dream. And Baker he says this. He says, when he heard a favorable interpretation, I too had a dream. And on my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Tell me what it means. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Okay, that's good. Three days, three days, three days. Within three days, Pharaoh's going to cut your head off and impale your body on a pole. Thank you for playing. It's like, that's not what I expected. That's not at all what I wanted. But he's faithful to the things. This is the birds will eat away your flesh. Now, the third day was Pharaoh's birthday. He gave a feast for all his officials. And in that feast, something changed. He decides, you know what? The butler wasn't that bad a guy after all. And he may have messed up the vintage, but, you know, he's basically solid and knows his stuff. Come on, you're back in again. But you know what? That, that chocolate mousse you made, Baker, that just sucked so bad that, you no, know, you're going down. And he executes, and all this happens in that three-day period. Great. Now, the butler is going to say, hey, here's how I got here. Verse 3, 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. There's a lot of forgetfulness and remembering going through these chapters. This is a bad forgetfulness, but there's another good forgetfulness we'll talk about. But he didn't remember him. Chapter 41, then two years had passed, two full years. So 17, I'm in slavery. Uh, 28, I'm thrown in prison. Now I'm 30, and I've been in prison for two years. And another dream kicks in. This time it's Pharaoh has a dream. And he dreams this vivid dream. He's standing by the Nile. And out of the river there come these seven cows, sleek and fat. And they start grazing around, and then suddenly there's seven other cows, but these are like the zombie cows, you know? They're just like gaunt and ugly and, and a little crazy. They're mad cows, you know? They come on out, and they devour the other seven good cows. 
but they still stay ugly and, 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 and emaciated and everything else. And, and, and the scripture says that basically he woke up. He's like, what happened? What was that? He just wakes up and he's kind of freaked out. You ever have one of those really realistic dreams, you know, that kind of catch you and bring a little anxiousness to you? And that's what happens here. But he's like, okay, it's just a dream. And he goes back to sleep again. Same night. He has a second dream, only this time it's seven heads of grain, healthy and good. And they're growing up on this single stalk. And then somehow there's a, a, another seven really ugly, thin, scorched, twisted heads of grain, zombie grain. And it goes after the other and devours the good grain. And now he wakes up and he's, he's just totally disconcerted. He, he can't go back to sleep. His mind's so troubled that he sends for all the wise people, everyone else, to tell him their dreams, but, but nobody can. He doesn't do the Nebuchadnezzar thing that says, you, you tell me what the dream was. He actually tells them the dream, but no one can interpret it. No one can understand what's being meant. And it's at that time that the chief cupbearer would have been standing there the whole time seeing all the interviews, going all the conversations, and he's like, oh, it'd be nice if someone could tell, the, tell my boss's dream. That'd be cool. I mean, oh, wait a minute. And it says, at that time, he goes to Pharaoh. He says, today I am reminded of my shortcomings. You were once angry with me, and you imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream that same night. Each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew amongst us told us that dream, and he tells them about Joseph two years later. Joseph had to think that God had forgotten him. He had to think that no one was coming for him. What do you do when you're thrown into a pit? How do you react? How do you react when, when, you're, in, when you're imprisoned or in slavery and, and, and bound in a certain areas? Or when, you're, when you are mixed characterized, when, when people take your perfectly good motives and twist that and, and shred your reputation for fools that are willing to listen to it? But Joseph has developed through this time. And here's the twist, guys, in part. We look at trials and tribulations and situations and we say, where is God in the midst of this? You need to understand that, that a lot of times that's where God exactly is. That's, it's in our trials and tribulations that we are shaped, that we're turned from little bratty kids with, with no concern for others into something different. There's a truth in Scripture that God until he, he doesn't use someone greatly until they have suffered greatly. That it's in that process that we're shaped and refined and, 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 and worked through. An engineer after first service came, he says, I'm an engineer. He says, you know, all the good parts, you test them first. You want to test them to make sure they're going to stand. It's a good point. God tests and shapes, but it says in this, he was still with him the whole time. So now he's brought out, he's brought before Pharaoh the most significant figure in the ancient world of that time. And he says, I've heard you can do dreams. I want you to do a dream. And here's a great response that you should remember in dealing with people. He says, I cannot do it. Whoa, what? I cannot do it. He says, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. In other words, Joe doesn't say, yeah, I'm the dream master, dude. Spin it up. He sits there and says, look it, this is God's stuff. He uses me as a channel. When I talk about not touching the glory of God and how pastors are doing that today and religious leaders are doing that today with all the celebrity crap that's going on, this is what I'm talking about. Joseph doesn't touch the glory of God. He says, no, it's God 
I'm just kind of the conduit, dude. Be careful of people that draw their attention to themselves for spiritual reasons and not to God. So Pharaoh gives him the dream. And um, he interprets it for him. He says, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be seven really great fat years. We're going to have all stuff pouring out all over the place for seven years. But then it's going to go really bad. There's going to be a drought and a famine for the next seven years. That's what's being talked about. And he gave it to you twice so that God could emphasize this is a done deal. It's going to happen. Whenever scripture references things twice, it's like this is really true. If, if it goes to three times, you know, verily, verily, verily I said to you, it's now gone cosmic, okay, that it's going to happen. But these two were to verify that. And so um, this is discerned, this is established, this is going to happen. Seven great years, seven lousy years. That's the dream. Job done. But now Joseph steps out in his own skill sets. And he says this. He says, it just seems to me, just a thought, I would suggest that you double what you normally take uh, from people for a tax. Normally it's 10%. I would double it to 20%. Take one-fifth of all the grain and store it during those seven years. I would suggest that you find someone who's really good at management skills, really skilled at handling this stuff, and put him in charge of this. Find that person, and that way you can store it for the seven years, and you'll survive the seven bad years. That's just a suggestion, just a thought, Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, that sounds like a great plan. Talks to all the guys. You know, this guy actually kind of, kind of sounds good for it. In fact, says... He asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? It's the first time in Scripture we have the Holy Spirit being upon somebody. Someone like this who has the Spirit of God? So he says, okay. Joe, you're out of prison, and you are now the prime minister of the most significant land in the entire ancient world. You are now in charge of everything. Uh, you're only second to me. You have become the person to whom all others will look for and look to and be watchful of. He has now hit his major stride of reality. And it never goes bad after that. Now, next week we'll talk about what happens after this and how this is important for uh, um, his family. But as a, as, a, as a quick thing, let's take a look and say this. A series of coincidences lead up to this moment. Just by uh, coincidence, um, Joseph's family is really messed up. And this whole favoritism thing happens. Just out of coincidence, his dad tells him to go to Shechem, but the boys have moved. But just by coincidence, there's this random guy walking by and says, oh yeah, I overheard a bunch of people talking out here in the field, middle of nowhere, and they were going to go to Dothan, and that's where you should go. And so he hears that. Another minute or two, he'd have missed him, but he gets him, and he goes on to Dothan, where they strip him and throw him, and what they're going to do, the brothers do this horrible thing to him. And then there's these random Ishmaelites that just coincidentally happen to be wandering by at the time, and they get sold into slavery. He ends up in Potiphar's house, who has some connection. He gets accused of rape, horrible. He ends up in prison, horrible. He ends up interpreting dreams, horrible. He ends up eventually then being brought to the attention of Pharaoh. And then being brought to the attention of Pharaoh, he ends up directing the whole land so that not only does Egypt not go um, starving, but they become a storehouse for the rest of the known world at that time. So much so that his brothers and his family and everyone else eventually, later we see, come to Egypt and that's how they survive. Without all these series of coincidences, Joseph's family dies. Everybody dies. Isn't these coincidences just amazing? God has a plan. 
And he executes that plan even when we're in cisterns and cannot see. He operates that plan even when we are prisoners. He operates that plan even when our character is mischaracterized. He operates that plan even when you don't hear him. But he is still there with you in the moment. And he was with Joseph. And his character and his nature and all of who he is transformed through this moment of time that not only is he able to then provide for his entire family ultimately, and so the blessing of God continues on and Jesus Christ eventually comes that without any of this wouldn't have happened. But he also changes through this process dramatically. And I want to draw your attention to how I know this. Because we find in Genesis chapter 41, near the end of the chapter, he has two children. In chapter 41, verses 51 through 52, he named his firstborn Manasseh. It is because God has made me forget all my troubles. Manasseh means forgetfulness. So that he's made me forget all my trouble and my fa- all my father's household. And the second son he named Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. I've become doubly fruitful, which is what it means for Ephraim. So with all the stuff that happened, all the slavery, all the betrayal, all the attacks, all the mischaracterization, all the things that happened with that, he reaches the point where he sits here and says, God has made me forget all that. See, when you and I have cistern moments, when we are mischaracterized, when we have those issues, we dwell on them. We don't forget. They stir in us, they turn in us, we get sullen, we pull back, and our character twists in a different direction. You will never succeed in life or before the face of God with that mindset. It will ultimately destroy you. But he reaches a point of forgetfulness. Maybe you say, wait a minute, but he had all these terribly hard, difficult issues. And, and that shouldn't be the way of, of Jesus. Jesus wants us to be happy and great and bright and everything should go perfectly. And when I follow Jesus, nothing should ever go wrong. What book are you reading? <laughs> Whose lives are you looking at? The 12 disciples? The, the, Jesus? I mean, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? Who are you looking at? But it should be different. Proverbs chapter 13 says, good understanding giveth favor, but the way of the transgressors is hard. You know why the way the transgressors is hard? Those who are pulling it, get away from God because God's not with them. But God is with you. If you're a follower of Christ and you're pursuing the ways of God, then even in the cisterns, even in the prison, even in those characterizations, even in the slander, God is with you. You may not hear him, but he is with you. All the same, and he's shaping something in you. But as long as you continue to focus on and remember only those things of darkness and all the hurt done to you and stay sullen, then you will miss bakers and butlers and moments that you could seize that could, that could develop you out of that moment. You'll get bitter and say, oh yeah, you know, wife, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take her, why not? Why not? It's not like I'm getting anything and Potiphar's just my slave master. You will mess those things up. But if you pursue the ways of God, He is with you in those moments. And then he brings it to a point where you let those things go and you forget about them and the previous pain in his life. He says, I've set it aside. I'm not bitter. I hate to use the phrase, but it's true. I'm not bitter. I am now better. You cannot be doubly fruitful. You cannot be Ephraim unless you're also Manasseh. You cannot be doubly fruitful and blessed unless you're releasing and forgetting those things of the past that, that, that bite so deep into your soul. C.S. Lewis described hell as a place where no one forgets anything. This book called The Great Divorce, it's a fantastic book on heaven and hell. It's the divorce between heaven and hell, not marriage. 
And hell is this small little tiny place where everything's gray and, and everyone's faded. And the more we go against God, the more we become insubstantial like ghosts. And, and that's where we reside in his book. The more we pursue things of God, the more real and dynamic and genuine. So we enter into heaven that's the most real, powerful, genuine place and authentic that we can have. That even says that this here is the shadow lands. That's how real it is. But he says in this book that hell is a place where no one forgets anything. Remembering every slight, every cruel exchange of words, every wrong ever done to them, and everybody is utterly unforgiving. But in heaven, all those things are put away because all things become new. God has made me forget. He has caused me to be fruitful. He forgot the hurt and the pain. He did not forget the faith of his fathers. How do I know that? Because if you look at the names, Manasseh and Ephraim, they're not Egyptian names. They're Hebrew names. He forgot the hurts and the pains, but he did not forget the faith of his fathers. I have only one final thing I want to share with you this morning. When I was a kid, back in the 1900s, my grandfather had um, a, a, a weird little thing. Um, I'll put up a picture real quick. If you had that picture, that little weird bird thing, do you guys have, have that up there? I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen anything like this. Okay, I've seen if you have. Basically, it's a little, I don't know, it's called tipping bird or drinking bird or whatever it is. And what happens is, it's, it's, um, as, it, as it's dried out, it, the center of gravity shifts and it dips forward and then by, by getting the water there's a capillary effect that draws the water into that reservoir in the back so as it's dried out it dips forward it, the water comes up, goes to the back and it, it comes up again and then after a while it dries out, evaporates it comes back down again I was fascinated by this when I was a kid in my grandfather's house now, you can take the picture off for a moment how does that relate to our conversation today? The bird is made so that its natural position is head down. Um, the center of gravity makes it tip. But when it's placed next to the water, it, it takes this thing and it comes back up into the bird. When bowed low, the bird finds water and the center of gravity shifts. But over time, what it drank evaporates and the weight of the world kicks in again and it comes down why is this important for today I think that, that we face trials and difficulties that these shape us that in those moments if we have any wisdom at all we bow down before God and we drink deep of his word we drink deep of scripture we drink deep in prayer we drink deep in the fellowship we don't isolate ourselves we draw into fellowship and as we draw in the water that would sustain us, the dryness of our soul, it soaks and, and works through. The, there's a time when eventually we kick back up and if it's put in a positive way, we're ready to face things again. And in a negative way, we can tend to forget. And as we forget and we dry out again and as things evaporate, then we find the weight of this world going on again and the center of gravity shifts one more time. I don't know what cistern you have found yourself in in this season. I don't know whoever sold you into slavery, what family dysfunction you come from. I don't know who mischaracterized your 
self and just and, and trashed your reputation or what prison you've been in, what dreams you had that were crushed, what relationships shattered, but God does. I didn't hear him. He's been there. He never left you. He's there the whole time. And you can let those situations shape you into someone bitter and ugly and twisted where the only place you're going to be fit for is hell because that's where they never forget a thing, not the slightest offense. But that's not the ways of heaven. It's grace. It's forgiveness. It's transformation and change from a lying sociopath to someone who has such humility and brokenness that they're used by God to save an entire nation, entire people group. We make those decisions every single day. My encouragement for you this morning is that you consciously make the choice in whatever circumstance you find to dip your beak into the word of God, to dip yourself into prayer, to immerse yourself in the fellowship of the community, to draw from that, and that whatever situation affects you, that you learn through that, shape through that, and become, I apologize, but to become better and not bitter. Next week we'll see how, how, how Joseph is used in a very, very specific way for his family and how it resolves these things very clearly. But for today, this is enough and it's for you. And so, shall we pray? Father, we come before you. Lord, I pray right now for every dysfunctional family. I pray for everyone who has been in prison, for everyone who has seen their reputation stained, for everyone who is walking through circumstances that they don't understand, that they're finding themselves dwelling on, that they're finding a rage and an anger building up, a desire to hurt others, a desire to hurt themselves, a desire to toss all this away and just, just do whatever we want to do and ignore you. But Lord, I pray this morning that your word would calm something within their spirit, that your word this morning would shape something within our hearts, God, to no longer dwell on the past, but to see the new thing that you're springing up, to not retreat into sullenness, but to embrace again the life that you set for us. And Lord, yes, to have the dreams not that we had from the start, not the dreams we had at the start, but the dreams that you have had for us all along come to fruition so that we too can say like Joseph, I've forgotten all the things that have happened in the past, what I know is that God has blessed me and made me fruitful. I pray, Lord, that in this day and through these words, you speak to our hearts and our minds. You guys bit off a huge chunk today, okay? I mean, 13 years of history, over four chapters in the scriptures, I mean, it's a lot to digest. Um, the next two will be in smaller bites, okay, the next two weeks. Um, I want to close with, with a prayer specific in this way. If you've been following the news at all, that you know that Michigan State University had something pretty horrific happen. Praise God, none of our students were injured in that event, but there's a trauma that comes from that to the entire community. And so we want to pray uh, for that community today. Um, and families who are dealing with that, as well as the family of the gunman. Uh, 
I'm sure they struggle and suffer through this time too. I want to contrast that for a moment with something else that's happening. If you've heard about Asbury University, there seems to be a revival of some type that's happening among the students there, and it's gone to other campuses. Now, just recently, they've made the decision to move it off campus to whatever's going to continue, and maybe it continues, maybe it doesn't. But I'll tell you, there is no answer for this country right now in the direction it's going. There's only one answer. We are either completely in turmoil and, and division and strife, and few civilizations, I don't know of anything in history that... that comes back up out of that. It's always a sign of decline of the civilization. But there is one thing that can change that, and that's a revival. That's, that's an actual outpouring of God's presence and spirit. Maybe Asbury's part of it. I don't know. But one, be encouraged by what is shaping, and two, seek that yourself. Be in prayer and say, God, what new thing do you have for me? What issue are you drawing? What, what can be revived in my spirit can be part of that, whether Asbury continues on or not. So, to that end, let us close today. Father, I pray right now that, that you would lift up those who are at Michigan State, whether it's administrators that have to handle the fallout of this, and teachers, but also the students and their families, especially those of our students that are there and their families, God, I pray that you just administer your grace and encouragement in this time and healing. And Lord, for whatever's taking place in Asbury, whatever is echoing out from that, Lord, Father, whatever is genuine, whatever is true, whatever is real and is of you, we pray, Lord, and ask that that would prosper and that that would grow and engulf our entire nation in a transformation of turning its heart towards you, God. And Lord, to whatever degree that depends upon us, let us be part of that, I pray. So God, guide us into these things. We lay all these things at your feet today. In Jesus' name, and the church said,